I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine you are dug in. You have a hole in the ground that you have dug yourself, and you are under attack. You are under attack, and there are waves of humans trying to murder you. They are trying to shoot you, blow you up, stab you if they get close enough. And as the bullets are whizzing all around you, you keep taking cover because that's what people do. And you hear these bullets thudding into the outside of your hole. Only the outside of your hole isn't a sandbag. It's not a mound of dirt. The bullets are thudding into what used to be your best friend the day before. And you are now in such a state of desperation. You have to use him as a human shield. Welcome to History with Jesse Kelly. It's Korean War time today. We're going to talk a little bit about Chosen Reservoir, Korean War. Let's walk through a very, I don't want to say misunderstood war, but one that's not talked about enough, that's for sure. Because in the long line of battles American troops have been through, you could say the Chosen Reservoir escape is probably the greatest. It's certainly on the short list. Before we get there, though, let's do this. Let's figure out why we're even there, what happened. And to do that, you have to understand a couple things. A couple things that are very, very important. One, Japan occupied Korea for a long time. We're talking World War II era. Japan was the colonial master of Korea. Don't ever listen to all these insane America-hating professors out there of all the evil white Western colonial powers. That's ridiculous. You know who colonizes other people? Everyone. Everyone who can. That's the history of the world. It's just the strong ruling the weak. That rule can be brutal. That rule can be not too bad. You didn't want to be ruled by the Japanese in this era. When they took over Korea and decided, hey, this is ours now, they were brutal about it. They worked to destroy the Korean language, Korean history. I won't elaborate on what it was like for the Korean women. The men were often forced into basically slave labor. And those are all the bad parts of it, or at least that's as many bad parts of it as I'm going to get into. But there were some benefits. Remember, colonization is never all bad. It's always presented as bad, but it's never all bad. Normally, the less advanced power, the weaker power, the one who gets colonized, yeah, they lose a lot of things. Sometimes it's brutal. Sometimes it's terrible. But... There is generally some sort of a trade-off. No, I don't like it that I have a puppet governor now, but hey, a lot better medical care in this country. Paved roads, that kind of stuff. Well, no different in Korea. Japan wanted to make Korea more advanced as Japan was advancing itself. And part of this was they wanted hydroelectric power. They wanted more juice flowing around Korea, which basically that's what gave us Chosen Reservoir. Now, that's, that's, that's the Korean part of it. Japan had it, and then post-World War II, Japan lost it. And post-World War II, the world had to divide up spheres of influence among the powers who won. And those powers were mainly Britain, America, and the Soviet Union. And this is the problem. The world is so often not black and white. The world is often many shades of gray. The Soviet Union is probably the most murderous, evil, detestable nation that has ever existed for that period of time, over that length of time. And yet, 
We had to be on their side in World War II to defeat the Nazis and defeat Japan. War makes for strange bedfellows. Therefore, they get, they get a say in the spoils of war. So after World War II, there were spheres of influence. Okay, America and Britain, you will, you will watch over this, and the Soviet Union will watch over that. And Korea, Korea got split. The northern part run by the communists, the southern part more administered by the United Nations, the world, the freer countries, that kind of thing. So there was one other part before we get to the actual war that actually is going to play a critical role in not only the Korean War, it plays a critical role in our world today. Money, militaries, standing armies, these things... These things go up and down depending on what's going on in the world. During World War II, the United States of America did something that it had really not done before. There was some of this in World War I, but nothing even close to the scale of it in World War II. And what was it? They built up a massive military. Staggering amounts of money were spent on naval vessels and tanks and planes, and the army's size itself grew exponentially. America had never been a country with a large standing army. Frankly, the founders warned against it. They thought the sta- that a standing army would be the enemy of liberty. Turned out they may have been right about that, but that's not what America ever believed in. America believed in having... A strong navy, because we have two oceans, we always believed in not having a strong navy, but having a small force of highly trained professionals who could then train others up quickly should the need arise. So at the end of World War II, America took a step back. Nazis are defeated. Japan's defeated. America takes a step back and it looks at its military and, wow, it was horrified at the cost, the size of it. It's just the, the nation itself couldn't even maintain to pay for that kind of a military, let alone the other freedom concerns. And so post-World War II, there was a massive drawdown in the size of American forces. America decided they were going to get this right. This army's too big. We get why we had to do it. Let's reduce the size. Let's get this down to something that's manageable. So they did. Started kicking people out. Closing this, closing that. Don't need this. Don't need that. Get rid of this budget item. Get rid of that budget item. You understand. We're not at war anymore. Let's get things back down. Insane. And there's another thing that happened post-World War II, the UN, the United Nations. You see, human beings do a lot of things, and we do something individually and as nations to comfort ourselves in the wake of something terrible happening. Keep in mind, World War II, as you know, it was, as, it was the biggest human event in history of any, of any kind. And the death and destruction that came with that, the numbers, the numbers boggle the mind. They, they boggle the mind. They're just China's numbers alone, the number of Chinese people killed, that is so much death and anguish worldwide. And remember, this person dies. Well, he's got a cousin. He's got a mom. He's got a sister. When you have that much death, it hurts. It hurts the entire world. And the world decided it was never going to happen again. Never again. And so we get the United Nations. Previously, it had been the League of Nations. This time, though, it was different. Post-World War II, we established the United Nations so it would never happen again. And that is one of those things human beings do to comfort themselves. Never again. We can never allow this again. Never again which you could argue is criminally naive because it's always going to happen again. But nevertheless, that's one of those things people do. The United Nations, we won't allow it to happen again, right? Now, that brings us to Korea. This is post-World War II. 
and the Soviet Union and communism, they're on the move. Remember, communism is never, was, it was never intended to be something that was just for this country or that country. The base philosophy is it must be universal. It must be for everyone in the world. It is why communists have such a hard time just staying within their borders. They don't really look at their borders or their country that way. This has to be for everyone. It was really no different in Korea. North Korea, a communist country, to this day still a communist country, but a communist country looked down at South Korea and they simply couldn't live with there being a separate free Korea. Communism had to be for all Koreans. And they attacked. They captured Seoul very, very, very quickly. And remember, this is very, very soon after World War II. Very soon after World War II. We're talking 1950. So it's just a few years, right? Remember, we were just talking about the anguish the world was going through. The, uh, the recovery, the financial devastation. The, it's not easy for a world to recover and recuperate from World War II. And then, bam, about 15 minutes after World War II, we have potentially another big war. And the, the China's right there because China was now completely controlled by the communists. We'll get to that in a minute. And we have the Soviet Union on the move. And it, it, it's crazy. Well... There was another part of this that was really, really bad. The North Koreans had just got done doing a bunch of fighting of their own, and they had a very, very capable force, very capable force, and they were slapping the South Koreans all over the place. They captured the South Korean capital, Seoul. I just already told you that. The world starts to freak, and this new, relatively new UN they decide they're going to step up and step in because we can't have another world war. Never again. We can't have this at all. Now, understand what this means from America's standpoint. We can set the UN aside because we'll get to some British stuff. There were other nations that took part in this. But for the most part, America, we, we, we had the brunt of this whole thing. We had to bear most of the burden for the Korean War. Okay, well, we already brought up how there was this massive drawdown of troops. We didn't have a big standing army anymore. That was gone. It had, been, it had been just done away with after World War II. What are we going to do? Well, America knew we needed to get a big force going, and we knew we had to get that force into Korea to stop North Korea before they took the entire thing. Now, let's pause on that for a moment. Let's talk for a moment about Douglas MacArthur because I have my biases. You, I'm sure, have your biases. Human beings have biases. That's how we are. So I need to get something out of the way right now. And you may disagree, and that's fine. But look, there's a little bit of opinion in everything, right? Even a history story. I cannot stand Douglas MacArthur. He is obviously a famous, oftentimes revered American military general. I will be honest with you, I can't stand Douglas MacArthur because during World War II, when the Japanese were taking over our guys in the Philippines, this is right before they led our guys on the horrible Bataan Death March, Douglas MacArthur did not spend a lot of time suffering and starving with the men he was supposed to be leading. And eventually, granted he was under orders to do so, but eventually he got on a boat and he left. And he was luxuriating in Australia while our guys were dying. That is a big deal for me. I believe officers should suffer with their men and lead from the front and hopping on a boat to leave your men to be tortured to death and starved to death is not something I consider to be forgivable. So there's my bias. He is a highly intelligent, highly decorated general. Maybe you love him. I need to be honest with you. I can't stand him. 
And I really can't stand it because of what happened here in Korea. And that brings us to where we're at now. Douglas MacArthur, post-World War II, was essentially given Japan. Now, let me clarify. Japan was still its own country post-World War II. But America, we viewed Japan as a potential ally, and that turned out to be correct. We viewed them as a potential ally and definitely an ally in the fight against communism because Japan is hugely anti-communist. We wanted their help in that. And the world learned after post-World War I that you really shouldn't just abuse the country you just took over, the country you just beat in a war, because then that only makes them mad and they might pop up like the Nazis did in World War II. So we decided we were going to do something different. We were going to put Douglas MacArthur really in, in charge of the country. I, I mean, I don't want to act like he was the king or the emperor, but he kind of was. He was in charge of the country. He was in charge of getting Japan back on its feet again. Pick yourself up. Let's get you a new government. Gets you some factories here. Ooh, Hiroshima's not looking too good. Let's get some construction. You understand what I mean. Douglas MacArthur was a man prior to this who already had a massive ego. Even MacArthur lovers will say that. A massive ego. When you become king of a country like that and you're surrounded by yes men, that's going to take a massive ego and it's going to shoot it to the moon. It went from massive ego to, honestly, you could probably call it a crippling ego, and we'll get to that here in a few. Now, those are the bad things. The good things are still this. Douglas MacArthur does still have an IQ that's about 9,000, and he does know a bit about military operations. He knew a bit before World War II, then he just went through World War II, so now he knows a lot. Douglas MacArthur is looking at this North Korean push down south, and he has a plan. And frankly, again, giving credit where it's due, it's a pretty brilliant plan. What was the plan? All right, so I want you to picture North Korea, South Korea, and I want you to picture them like this. I want you to, pick, I want you to picture your TV remote control, right? Your TV remote control. And I want you to draw a line across it in your mind, from left to right, or right to left, it doesn't matter. Draw a horizontal line across it, right in the middle of it. Right in the middle of it. You have this North Korean army. They cross that line, pushing down south, and things are looking bad. And my goodness, they're clear down to the southern tip. This South Korean army's almost wiped out. What are we going to do? Well, conventionally, what you could do is land all your troops on that southern tip where the other guys are and then make your stand and fight them off. Or it's been done before. It's risky. You can land your troops up close to that horizontal line. You can land them behind the North Korean troops and begin to push north. Basically, cut off their supply lines and make them feel as if their homeland is now in serious mortal danger. Because remember, the bulk of your troops are in the South trying to defeat the South Koreans. That's what we did. We landed at a place, I'm, I'm going to mispronounce all the names, but a place called Incheon. Don't worry about that. We, we, we landed our troops about halfway up now, what troops were they? Because we talked earlier about what, what exactly, what, what, I don't understand. We're, who are we even sending there when we have this small force? We called up our reservists. How desperate were we for bodies? Well, I'll put it to you this way. We had Marines, many of them, on those ships heading to North Korea and they'd never really been through and finished boot camp yet. We had Marines doing boot camp on board a ship on the way to the Korean War. How about that for drawdown? We simply didn't have the manpower. But we gathered up, let's just call it 20,000. The numbers are, are, are different. Let's just call it 20,000. And we land at Incheon. We land successfully. There is definitely some fighting as we fight our way through the North Koreans. But, and 
well, you can argue whether this is good or bad, we didn't have a ton of trouble with them. We just didn't have a ton of trouble with them. We, yeah, we took some casualties. We definitely melted some North Korean cities in the process, but we really pounded them pretty good. Now, we've landed. North Korea is no longer going to be taking over South Korea because we've stormed in and beaten up the North Korean army so badly. We clearly outclassed them in every sense of the word. We, just, we had the supplies, the artillery, the tanks, the planes. That, that they, just, they were no match for us at all. And now we're feeling pretty good. Now let's pause for a moment because these things are always more complicated than just one snapshot on the ground. Let's understand something about China. We're going to leave North Korea for a second, and we're going to go to China. China had just recently decided which direction it was going to go. And by that, I mean there had been this war in China going on for a long time between the nationalists and the communists. Mao, obviously, was the leader of the communists. And they were fighting, I mean, before World War II, these two sides were fighting. And then during World War II, and then they kind of laid down their swords in World War II and then picked them right back up again post-World War II. They wanted control of China, each side. Obviously, America was on the side of the nationalists. That's going to come into play here. Mao and his communists... They essentially sat out a lot of World War II and let the nationalists take most of the casualties. So they were in a lot better shape post-World War II. Boom, Mao steps in and Mao wins. About 1949, right before this, Mao and the communists have taken over China. Now I need you to understand something about Mao. Mao may be the most evil human being who's ever walked the planet. I despise him. You should despise him. I'll do another. To- I'll do a history podcast on Mal at some point in time. That's not what this is. But let's be honest about something. Mao was not the average communist you'd find on the college campus these days. The limp-wristed guy in skinny jeans and a bunch of earrings in his face who's never been in a fight in his life. Mao may have been a murderous piece of trash, but Mao and his communists... They were tough. They'd been through many, many, many battles. Mao actually at one point in time had trained with Americans on guerrilla warfare. So many of those Marines in World War II, Marine Raiders, many of them had fought with and learned from Mao. Mao understood military strategy. Mao understood battles. Mao, dirtball communist as he was, was a very, very, very capable military leader. All right? That's going to come into play. Another thing that's going to come into play was this. Mao hated America. Uh, Now, communists naturally hate America anyways because America used to be a free country, so communists despise that. And... Mao obviously had an axe to grind with the fact we had been backing his enemy. We'd been backing the nationalists. We'd been giving them weapons and things, trying to make sure these communists didn't take over. We didn't like communism back then. So that brings us back to Korea. We land with this force. We land halfway up, slap around the North Koreans. Hey, everyone, we good here? Looks like we have done our job. We have stopped it. But it didn't stop there. Why? Well, this is partially on Douglas MacArthur, but in fairness to him, it was a common way of thinking at the time that why don't we just continue charging up the country? If this part was so easy, why don't we continue in North Korea? Why don't we charge right up to the Chinese border? Why don't we just take the whole thing? Now, MacArthur was obviously pushing for this and having just pulled off an admittedly pretty brilliant move, and he was already a legend in political circles and military circles, Douglas MacArthur swings a big stick. It didn't take a lot of convincing for MacArthur to convince the American president, Harry Truman, other Pentagon people, just the powers that be all bought into the idea really early on 
yeah, let's keep going. But there was a problem. And remember, we were talking about MacArthur a little bit earlier and how ego ego can be a really, really dangerous thing. And especially where he was in life, his ego was getting to a dangerous place. Douglas MacArthur had been getting reports from people on the ground that Chinese were coming. Now, he dismissed all these reports. But these reports oftentimes were coming from captured Chinese troops. Well, what's what's going on there? What, would China actually come across? I'm not sure yet. But these are scattered reports and nothing significant right now. So maybe we can make an excuse so far. Whatever. MacArthur gets the thumbs up. Hey, head on up towards China. Now... The Marine commander, I don't want to give you too many names. I hate doing that because people get lost in the details, but you really should probably remember this name. The Marine commander, General Smith, he was the man actually in charge of all the troops on the ground. He was also not a big MacArthur fan, although he was a bit of a soft-spoken guy. And when he got word that they were supposed to head up towards China, he was not comfortable with this at all. Now, don't think that's because Smith was a coward. He's a very brave man, a really, really quality general. Smith was looking at a map, and he was looking at the terrain, and Smith realized something. One, we are heading into the mountainous area where temperatures are about to begin dropping a lot. Two, this is not our area here. Three... How are we getting there and how are we getting back? You see, Americans or people in really modern industrialized countries, we're used to something. We're used to roads. Look around you. You probably have roads all around you right now. There's a road going that way and a road going this way. There's some roads here and roads. Roads. I got roads everywhere. It's not like that in all parts of the world. And it's definitely not like that in rural mountainous North Korea. Smith was looking and he saw one way up north and one way back down south. Any general worth his salt is going to look at that and get greatly, greatly concerned because what if they do get attacked? The other side's going to know there's only one way in and one way out. And believe me, that's going to come into play here. Nevertheless, Smith was not in charge. MacArthur was in charge, and MacArthur said, Smith, go. Now, I'm not going to get into one prong of this whole thing. There was actually a separate prong that went a different way. We're just going to focus on the main force right now. They start heading north. Now we're going to get to where most of our story is going to take place. Chosen Reservoir. You've probably heard the name. Now, for the sake of ease, I just want you to picture a big lake. It was not a perfect round circle or anything like that. It doesn't look like that at all. But really, for the purpose of the story, it doesn't matter what it's shaped like. Just picture a big round lake if that makes it easier for you, okay? And this is what I want you to do. I want you to picture this big circle. And at the... Six o'clock part of the circle, at the southern portion of the circle, there's going to be a place that's going to come into play here. Don't worry about memorizing the name, but it'll help if you do. This place is called Hagaru. Now, what was Hagaru? Nothing, really. It was just this tiny little village at the southern part, at that six o'clock portion of the Chosen Reservoir. But what it became was headquarters. Smith got there, decided he was going to put down roots, and this was going to be his headquarters. And I need to explain something first before we go further. As Smith was pushing his way towards Hagaru, as he was pushing his way north, he started to get into contact with Chinese troops. Chinese troops. Remember, we weren't at war with China. And all the China stuff was just kind of a rumor up to this point in time. But they start fighting 
and slapping around Chinese troops. We're defeating them very easily. They would show up and we'd fight them and kill a bunch. And then they'd just take off almost, almost like cowards. Who are these cowards? They're just taking off. And we're capturing some of these Chinese troops. And as they do, they begin interrogating the Chinese troops we would capture. And the Chinese troops we captured were very, very, very honest, almost unnervingly honest. And what they were telling Smith was, oh, there's a ton of us. There's two or 300,000 Chinese troops coming here. Smith, obviously, he has, remember, he has 20,000 men. Smith begins to send word back to MacArthur. He sends word up the chain that, hey, uh, we are getting word that there are a lot of Chinese troops here. And remember, the American politicians were very wary about getting in a war with China. They didn't want Chinese troops coming in. This was just supposed to be a North Korean thing. And they were aware of how many people the Chinese have. Then and now, they've got a lot of them. It's not ideal if you fight them. So Smith starts sending word back to MacArthur saying, Hey, uh, Doug, <clears throat> there are apparently a lot of Chinese troops coming here. We're getting word there's a lot of Chinese troops coming here. And in one of those hard-to-explain moves, MacArthur kept laughing this real intelligence off and dismissing it. There's even a race component to it, not necessarily with MacArthur, but one of his underlings. His name is Almond. It doesn't matter, but... He called them laundry men. He just didn't think very much of the Chinese or the Chinese ability to fight. And remember, that's not a everyone's racist type thing. That's like everyone does today. Race and prejudice, they oftentimes play a gigantic role in world events. Remember, everybody holds some form of prejudice. This did... It really it was part of why the American generals were so willing to take these chances. Well, the Chinese aren't coming, but even if they are, they're Chinese. What are they going to do? That kind of thing. So Smith keeps sending these warnings, and they keep being dismissed. But here was the actual reality on the ground. The reality on the ground was these Chinese troops we were capturing who were giving these warnings about just how many Chinese troops are coming, they were all being very, very honest. Mao looked at what was happening, and he decided he was going to commit many troops to wipe out a massive American army. And he did this for a couple different reasons. One, he hated us. We've already discussed that. Two, I can't believe I'm even going to say these words for a piece of trash like Mao. In Mao's defense... There is a massive army hostile to your country charging towards your country. How would you react? That there was a Chinese army right now, a huge Chinese army making its way north through Mexico City right now. Do you think you would want some American troops to head on south and maybe put a check on that? That's where Mao was. And Mao understood something as well. Again, remember, Mao is a capable military man. Mao thought, I can surround these guys and wipe them out. Now, how was he going to do this? I mean, let's, let's be honest. Mao's country was in dire financial straits, starving, and technologically, they just weren't there at all. They were I mean, really a, a very backwards country technologically by this point in time, in part because of Mao, but still, they just weren't doing well. They don't have the tanks and planes and ships and things like that. Well, Mao understood that. And like any good military commander, Mao chose to make his weakness his strength. What am I talking about? How does that work? Well, if you've got a bunch of men, you don't have tanks, you don't have trucks, you don't have planes, you don't, you don't have aircraft carriers. Yeah, it definitely puts you at a big disadvantage when you're having a big fight. But... Mao understood in a head-to-head -head fight you'd rather have tanks and planes and whatnot, but having only men means you're awfully quiet. You see, you don't have a long line of tanks and planes flying overhead, consuming fuel. If you have only men, 
you can move around without being seen, without being heard. Mao decided he was going to commit, we don't know the number, no one does, so you hear all different numbers. We're just going to call it 300,000 troops to go down and wipe out this American force. And remember, this was his plan. His plan was to surround and wipe out the American troops. And how was he planning on doing this? Well, it was a two-pronged strategy. Remember, Mao understood guerrilla warfare. He understood warfare very well. Remember when we talked earlier about how the American troops kept getting in these fights with the Chinese troops and they would just just slap them around like they were nothing and then they'd retreat like cowards and Americans were laughing it off. These guys are useless. That was done on purpose. You see, as we were fighting our way up north and slapping around these, quote, cowardly Chinese, they were sucking us in on purpose. They wanted us to wet our beak, be too excited, think they were weak. They wanted us to come north. They wanted us to come to Chosen Reservoir. When we arrived in Chosen Reservoir, we arrived right in the trap Mao had set. We, we were getting an idea of this, but we didn't fully understand how bad it was. Now, how did they get clear down south without, how did that many troops get down south without being seen again? Mao understood some things. He understood American air power. He understood Americans would use their air power to recon, to look around, see what's out there. So he had his people, 300,000 men, travel at night. During the day, where were they? All these American planes flying overhead. Look, I don't see any Chinese forces coming down. Yeah, that's because Mao's guys, they would hide in train tunnels. They would actually tie themselves to trees and sleep standing up. They wore white and slept in the snow. These planes flying overhead couldn't look down and see 300,000 Chinese troops. They had made themselves hidden. Back to where we were. We arrive at Hagaru, that little village at the southern tip of Chosen Reservoir, the 6 o'clock portion. And by now, Smith, the man in charge of the Marines, is well, well aware he, he has a problem on his hands. He, he's no longer advancing with the speed he was advancing before. He's starting to pick up more and more chatter about these Chinese troops and the size of the Chinese forces. And so this is what he does. He sends, you know, we've got the chosen reservoir. I told you it's a circle. It's not a circle at all, but just picture it like a circle. That's all that matters for our story. So we have a circle and we have Hagaru, home base, at, at the six o'clock part of the circle, at the southern end of the circle. He takes an army unit. Remember, these are army and marines, mostly marines, but army. He takes an army unit and he sends them to the east part of the circle, to the three o'clock portion of the circle. You go over here, get some hills, get this place secured. He takes marine units and he says, you Go to the west part. Go to the 9 o'clock part of the circle and secure it. And what do I mean when I say secure it? Well, this is what I mean. This is a reservoir. It's surrounded by mountains and hills. If you want to secure an area like this, you have to get the high ground. You have to get on top of one of these peaks, and you have to dig in, dig some holes, and observe and fight. You want to have that high ground. That's what you wanted to do. That was the idea. Now, they get themselves dug in, and all of a sudden, it goes off. You see, many of these Marines, by the grace of God, the Marine leadership, many of these guys were World War II veterans. Many of these guys had fought in places like the Pacific. They understood security. They understood how to fight. They understood how to set up a perimeter. They understood position. And in one of the... In, one of the most underrated parts of this is making sure, making sure you know when the enemy is coming. The Marines would put out things like a wire, and they'd put a can in it with just some rocks in it. And it sounds simple, but you attach that to the wire, someone hits the wire, rattle, 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 now you know somebody's there. The Chinese attack on the first night. 
And something you have to understand about this entire battle is because they're communists, because they were the Chinese communists, they were they had no regard for human life, no regard for the human lives of their own troops. They would send wave after wave after wave of these communists at these dug-in Marine positions, and they didn't care how many died. The communists would, and this is not uncommon in communist armies, they would send guys with weapons. They would be the first wave. But lots of those guys would get slaughtered. You have a bunch of Marines dug in with a machine gun nest pointing down at you. The second wave didn't always have weapons. Their job was to pick up the weapons of the guys from the first wave who got killed, pick up their weapon, and keep charging right at the same area. What was the back wave doing? The back wave, they were the bunch of political commissars. Their job was to mow down any Chinese communist who turned around and ran. So they didn't have any choice but to throw themselves at the Marine positions in waves. It's a terrible first night all around. There are simply so many Chinese assaulting these positions, and by now it's freezing. You're dug in in the freezing cold. Men are losing fingers. It's, a, it's an ugly, ugly bit of business. I'll give you a story. I, I told this on my radio show before, but... There was a Marine, we're just going to call him Big Heck, because that's what his buddies called him. He is dug in, and on this night, he's dug in, he's sleeping in a sleeping bag right next to his friend, he's got a, his closest buddies right beside him. Picture this moment. Picture popping up in your sleeping bag as Big Heck did. Your buddy's asleep beside you. And you see five Chinese communists right in front of you coming to kill you. Big Heck grabs his rifle. Boom, 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 boom. Kills all five of them right away. They throw a grenade at him and his buddy. It blows up. It gets in his buddy's eyes who already wore glasses. And his buddy's eyes essentially seal shut with blood. He can't function and shoot the rest of the night. So the rest of the night, he sits there like a warrior and loads up new magazines and hands them to Big Heck, who spends the night ending lives. This is the guy who at one point in time in the night, the Chinese were trying to kill him so bad, they started chucking grenades up at him. He picks up an e-tool, essentially a little shovel, and like a baseball player, keeps swatting the grenades back down at the Chinese. Yeah, he ended up winning a Medal of Honor for what he did that night. But long story short, there's a bunch of stories like that, like Big Heck's story. But you have to understand, the Marines are getting shot to pieces. They're alive, they're surviving, but they're running low on ammo, they're running low on men. It's a terrible first night. And so Smith, the commander at his base, he begins building an airfield. Remember something, remember something. Air power is something Americans take for granted. Other countries haven't historically had it. They certainly haven't had our history of superiority in the air. Air power saves lives, and it would save a lot of lives here. Smith understood in order to bring supplies in and get wounded men and other things out, he had to have an airfield. Well, that's easy to say. Build me an airfield. Let's keep in mind. You have to actually have good ground for an airfield. You can't just land one of those big planes anywhere. You have to build it. You have to make sure it's leveled out. You have work to do. Well, we're not only dealing with frozen ground of North Korea. These brave guys who had to build this airfield are getting shot to pieces while they're building an airfield. If I was to tell you or look, tell myself, go build an airfield, and the freezing cold, that alone might be too much for me. You know what? I'm done. I'm done. How about go build an airfield in the freezing cold? Oh, by the way, the guy on the back o in front of you just got shot in the face. That's what these guys are dealing with. Nevertheless, the airfield has to get built. It has to get built. Now, because the Chinese could see what was happening with the airfield, remember, by now, by now, this is the situation. The Marines are dug in in the hills. 
But the Chinese, all of them, have the Marines completely surrounded. Several divisions of Chinese have surrounded the 1st Marine Division. The Chinese are not stupid. They can see that Smith is building an airfield. The Chinese understand very well what that means. They don't want Smith to have an airfield. Now, there's a hill. There's a hill called East Hill. It overlooks the airfield. The Chinese want that hill because then they'll be able to basically look down and shoot down at the airfield and mop it up. Smith is no idiot. He knows the Chinese want that hill. So he sends men over there to hold that hill. But he didn't have grunts. Infantrymen is what we call them. Grunts. Now, what does that mean? What's the difference? I don't understand. I never, Jesse, I never served. Understand this. I was in the infantry, in the Marine Corps. It doesn't make me any superior, any, any, any better than anyone else. But it does mean I have a different level of training than somebody who wasn't. If I'm a Marine Corps infantry grunt, I'm going to have 50 hours a week, 60 hours a week of training for that combat. That's my job. My job is shooting, moving, communicating. My job is calling in here, doing this, grenades, claymores. That's my job. If you're not a grunt, if you're a cook, a cook's important. People got to eat. If you're an administrative guy, you're dealing with the paperwork and the maps and things like that, that's fine. That's important. Got to know where you're at. You're not training for 50 hours a week to kill people. You're lucky if you train one hour a week to kill people. It's just a different level of training, a different type of training. That brings me back to what I was saying. Smith needs men to secure the East Hill. Smith doesn't have any more grunts left. They're all out at the other hills. Smith has to send a bunch of non-grunts to go hold the hill. And these brave guys, cooks and bakers, they go over there and they dig in. And the Chinese throw themselves at this hill and... Just a horrible battle. A horrible battle ensues. But we hold the hill. Barely, but we hold the hill. And then we hold it again. And by this point in time, this is the situation. We are a few nights into this whole thing. And everything is teetering. We are about ready to lose. And understand what losing means. There's no escape. There's no boat. There's no plane swooping in. If the lines break, we're going to have 20,000 dead Marines. And understand this as well. The newspapers in the United States of America at this point are already starting to, to put in print. The Marines are doomed. They're all going to die. No one's coming home. You see, we don't think of it now because hindsight is 2020. But there was a wife, a mother, a father picking up a newspaper and reading that their son had no chance to live. Think what that moment is like. And Smith, at this point in time, understands how much trouble he's in. And he understands he's about to lose East Hill. His guys simply can't withstand another Chinese attack. So Smith has to make one of those decisions that's just, just brutal. Absolutely brutal. This decision is he must risk something. You see, you remember where Smith was, right? He's back at that 6 o'clock portion, the bottom of the circle. You have it pictured in your mind? Well, draw a little line straight down from that straight south, and there was another little area where we had some guys. There were some British troops and American troops there. It was called Coterie, but don't, don't worry about that. It's just, just remember there was another little place there. They had guys there. Smith tells them, I need you guys up here. I need you to send everyone up to me. Now, remember, the Chinese have this whole area surrounded, and they dang sure have the one road covered in between Smith and Coterie. They have it well covered. They're well aware Smith needs to get reinforcements and they'll come from that road. And they're aware when Smith leaves, he's got to take that road. Again, there aren't super highways everywhere. This is the only road. Smith understands this. To his credit, he didn't feel great about dooming men to die with this order. 
but he understood he was going to lose all 20,000 Marines if he did not get help. And so a bunch of Brits and Americans, they hop in a massive truck convoy and they start driving north up to Hagaru trying to get to Smith so they can save him. Now, this journey is ugly. It's one of the uglier things you'll ever read about if you ever want to read all the details of it. This is the part of it you need to understand. When you have a road, and this is going to apply a couple times in the story today, when you have a road in the mountains, I don't know if you've ever driven in the mountains. I grew up in Montana, so I've driven a bunch in the mountains. Roads don't go on the top of the ridges. Roads either go basically in the bottom, in the valley, or if you're climbing, if you need to raise or lower elevations, roads get dug into the side of the mountain. So you have sheer cliffs on the, on the sides or all this high ground on the sides. That's a long way of saying it's really not difficult to get yourself in position to massacre a convoy. You can dig in above them and just mop them up. And the Chinese were waiting and the Chinese attacked this convoy and it was beyond terrible. The Chinese were not stupid. They understood very well you need to shoot the drivers. So they would shoot the drivers and a driver would die and they'd have to toss him out the truck and another driver would get in and drive as far as he could and he'd get shot to pieces. They're getting shot up so bad. The vehicles are burning. The vehicles are blowing up. People were burning to death. They're getting shot so bad. They get in touch with Smith and say, hey, man, we're, I don't think we're going to make it. Are you sure you want us? And Smith tells him, I'm sorry. You've got to come. I have to have you. And he did. Now, how did it end? Well, the back end of the convoy actually made it out okay because they turned around and went back. They couldn't make it. The front part, while it was shot to pieces, they did get through, took many casualties, but they did get through. We'll get back to them in a second. The middle part, the middle part didn't make it at all. Many, many Americans were actually killed. Many were taken captive. Some spent a couple years in POW camps. Bet you didn't know that because of this little run. Now, let's go back to Hagaru. Smith gets his replacements. Those replacements go over. They help out. Now, let's pause here for a moment because there is a man I need to recognize. John Yancey. Now, he's one of the guys leading one of these hills. And John Yancey was already a war hero. He had already fought with the Marine Raiders in uh, Guadalcanal in World War II. He was already a decorated Marine. And he's just one of these guys who's born to end lives. And John Yancey, he was in charge of a big group of Marines at the top of one of these hills, and they're getting shot to pieces. By the end of one morning, Yancey has 90% casualties. He's been wounded several times himself. He has bullet holes through all of his clothes. 90% casualties. Yancey, at one point, yells to his men that he needs to gather up a group of them to go plug another spot in the line because they're getting shot so bad. At this point, a Chinese soldier with a Thompson submachine gun shoots Yancey in the face, pops in front of Yancey, shoots him in the face, shoots his jaw, shoots out a bunch of his teeth, and his eyeball pops out of its socket. Yancey, with his eyeball on his cheek, pulls out his pistol, a war prize pistol that he got in Japan, and shoots the Chinese guy dead who just shot him in the face. And then he reaches up, grabs his eyeball, and puts it back into the socket. Why didn't John Yancey win a Medal of Honor? Most people ask that question. John Yancey could have won a Medal of Honor and should have won it for this. Why didn't he? Every officer who could have gave him one died. That's John Yancey. Just thought he deserved a special shout out. Now let's get back on the, on the timeline here. Remember I told you about the army unit. The army unit that had been sent to the east part of the reservoir over to the 3 o'clock portion of the reservoir. That army unit was in dire, dire, dire straits. They had been completely cut off from everyone else. Their commanders kept dying. They were now starving to death. They weren't getting resupplied. They were short on ammunition. That army unit was in trouble, very serious trouble. 
and they figured it out. They, they figured out very quickly, no one is coming to save us. Remember, there was no one to go save them. They did, there was no manpower. There was no nothing. They figured out they have to escape and try to get back to that base, try to get back to Hagaru. So they attempt a breakout. And it's one of the uglier things you'll ever read about. You see the breakout consists of a bunch of trucks. And remember, you don't have a bunch of healthy army guys. These guys are horrible frostbite. If you ever see a documentary, and I'd highly recommend you watch them, about Chosen Reservoir or Korea, you will notice something. Many of the veterans who are talking, they don't have any fingers. Many of them don't have feet anymore. We're talking temperatures, they said, with the wind chill, 50 below zero and worse. Guys are frozen to death. Guys are getting shot. Guys are getting blown up. You don't have a bunch of healthy army guys trying to break out, but they don't have a choice. So you have to load all the wounded you can in the bed of these trucks and then cling to the trucks and then start driving the trucks out trying to escape. But again, remember, you're surrounded. You're not trying to escape through a neighborhood. The Chinese knew it. The Chinese, again, start shooting all the drivers. The American commanders, again, anyone in charge continues to get killed. So soon it becomes a route. Soon it becomes a disorganized route. Every man for himself type thing. There are great stories of heroism. Guys hopping in the driver's seat when they know they're about to get shot, but they understand they have to drive. And there are stories of cowardice, ones we don't like to talk about. Drivers just parking their truck with a bunch of wounded men in the back and getting out and leaving them there and taking off. What you do need to know is eventually the Chinese, they get their hands on all these trucks that have been shot to pieces with all the wounded troops in the back. And they burned a lot of our guys to death in the trucks. Just set the trucks on fire with the wounded men in it. Long story short, there were about 2,500 of these army guys. About 300 or so were the ones who actually made it back to Hagaru. And many of those guys had to be out on the ice for a couple days trying to escape. There are stories of feet if essentially breaking off in the boots when the boots were removed. These men were frozen Solid, frozen solid. And let's understand the airfield now at Hagaru. Yes, planes are coming in, planes are going out, but you don't have a ton of them and you're trying to load the wounded onto planes and guys are injured in terrible ways. There were some heartbreaking stories out there about, hey, we don't have room for this guy. I know he's still alive. Leave him to die. There are stories out there about guys being conscious and hearing these decisions being made. Sorry, he's got to be left. We can only take him. We just didn't have the room. There are stories. You can watch them. You can hear these veterans talk about how they were pretty sure they were all going to die. Remember, they're in bad, bad, bad trouble. But they do all eventually get back to Hagaru. There have to be all these kind of escapes and relief actions all over the place. Stories of units facing the cold in the middle of the night just so they can traipse through the snow in the mountains to try to relieve another unit over here on the hill that's almost wiped out. There are so many stories. I would really, really encourage you, if this interests you at all, to read some books on it. There are great books on it. A couple of great ones. The Last Stand of Fox Company might be one of the best books I've ever read on it. Uh, on Desperate Ground by Hampton Sides is maybe the best, one of the best war accounts I've ever heard. If this stuff interests you, believe me, I'm skipping over a lot of it just in the interest of time. I wanted to try to keep this to an hour or less. But back to our story. Okay, now you have a bunch of guys... You finally consolidated your forces back at that six o'clock portion of the circle. You still have to get out. The Chinese are still there. And I do need to give a shout out at this point in time because I haven't done it yet to American air power. American pilots in the Korean War saved, saved these guys. Yes, bravery on the ground did too. 
but without American pilots strafing these Chinese troops, dropping napalm on these Chinese troops, doing whatever they could do to save these guys, without American pilots doing things like that, they don't make it out alive. But we still have to try to get south. And remember, there aren't many roads. It's a problem. And I do need to take another quick pause and mention all the dead. I brought it up at the very beginning of the show, having to use your buddy as a sandbag against the bullets around you. I want you to understand something. I hope you never have to experience that before, but that's the kind of thing that affects you the rest of your life. What happens to people once they're dead affects the living a great deal. I'm bringing this up now because we have a bunch of dead Marines, a bunch of dead soldiers, and we have to escape south here, and there's not room, and you can't have a proper burial. They had to blast. The ground was too frozen to dig now. They had to blast mass holes in the ground and throw their dead buddies in there who were frozen stiff on top of each other and cover them up, and it affected them. It affects them to this day. If you talk to one about it, it affected them a lot. It was tough, very tough. Back to getting south. The roads are low, and at one point in time, they crossed a bridge to get up there. The Chinese, again, not stupid. They had since then blown that bridge to get south. In one of the more fascinating military engineering stories of all time, if you look at this bridge and how high it is, you can go look at pictures of it. It's amazing. They dropped enough supplies down to the troops so they could get a makeshift bridge built so trucks and men could drive over it. And when I say makeshift bridge, I want you to understand, I don't mean it was solid all the way across. You could stand on it and look right down through it, 1,000 feet below, and look at the ground. How crazy is that? Now, let's wrap this up here because I don't want to go any longer. They didn't make it out. It is one of the great fighting withdrawals, great escapes, whatever you want to call it, of all time. And you could make of this what you will. The Korean War, more than anything else, brought about America's current foreign policy of having a permanent, huge military, of having bases all over the world. This thing scared America so badly that we altered our foreign policy from that point forward forever. That was History with Jesse Kelly.